0: Welcome to Occult of Personality, Esoteric Podcast Extraordinaire. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky. This is episode number 202 featuring an outstanding interview with Michael Martin about the revised version of the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz and much more. Occult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners and by the subscribers to ChamberofReflection.com, our membership site. This episode is also sponsored by several listeners who made generous donations to aid us and the cause of informed, authentic, and accessible interviews about Western esotericism. Thank you again, Martin, Andrew, David, and Judith, because of your donations and the support of the subscribers to the Chamber of Reflection, we're able to bring you interviews of this caliber and more to come. Now, in episode number 202, Michael Martin joins us to discuss this recent version of The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, which features two of his essays that recontextualize and add a much greater depth of meaning to the story. To put it briefly, my interpretation of Martin's assertion is that the actual intention of the text was to allow readers to see through the attachments to pride, recognition, knowledge, whether esoteric or mundane, and instead gather themselves around a simpler spirituality that endeavors to see and understand the vast mystery of reality beyond any classification or even languaging. But it's clear that it wasn't exactly a promotion of what seems to have occurred in terms of secret societies and esoteric orders and fraternities and what have you. I think Martin's work here is crucial, and I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to him about it and share that conversation with you. Although I wish I'd encountered Martin years ago when I first became interested in Rosicrucianism, but it seems fitting that it is taken until now. I would dare to say that his analysis is worth your time and consideration. It might even bring about new insights or different ways of appreciating Western magic and esotericism. And related to Rosicrucianism, Michael also talks about sophiology, a radical way of seeing and feeling the world as the deepest mystery of reality. A form of Western non-duality, if you will. Our conversation here only touches the tip of the iceberg of scholarship and mysticism that lay beneath. Michael Martin, Ph.D., is a philosopher, poet, musician, songwriter, editor, and biodynamic farmer. He spent 16 years as a Waldorf teacher and master teacher, and taught at the university and college level for over 17 years. He began biodynamic farming in 1990, and currently raises dairy goats, bees, and other animals while managing a market garden with his wife and some of his nine children. His poetry and scholarship have appeared in many journals, and he is the editor of Jesus the Imagination, a journal of spiritual revolution. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Wild Rose by Barry Sulkin. Michael Martin, thank you for agreeing to sit down with me today. I appreciate it very much. Well, I appreciate the offer. Thanks. Um, I was first introduced to your work through this book that recently came out, The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreuz. Of course, this is not the first uh, time this has been published, obviously. <laughs> but um, this is a edition of the Ezekiel Foxcroft translation, but it's revised and you put some essays surrounding it um, that I think, at least for many readers, would recontextualize this particular yeah. text um, mm-hmm. and, in my opinion, make it more valuable than it ever could have been before that without this sort of understanding that you impart to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, But before we talk more about the book, maybe you could just briefly introduce yourself to the listeners. Well, I I do a lot of different things. Uh, First of all, I'm
1: a biodynamic farmer, but I have a Ph.D. in in English. And uh, my specialty in English literature is uh, 16th and 17th century uh, religious literature. And The Chemical Wedding comes right in there because the Foxcroft edition was published in 1690. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of what I've been thinking about. In fact, I've been thinking about it for, for my most, all of my adult life, I would think. I think I first bought the a copy of uh, The Real History of the Rosicrucians by A.E. Waite. I was probably 20, mm-hmm. you know, didn't understand much of it. You know, like when you read alchemy, it's no one understands it, you know, but you know, I was intrigued, you know, and I was intrigued at first by the artwork that accompanied a yes. uh, chemical text. You know, because yeah. it, it started with me taking uh, a printmaking class. I wasn't even enrolled in college. It someone said, "Hey, want to take this class?" So I took this class, and I was really intrigued by by these engravings. And it, you know, gradually, step by step, I started to get involved. Read the chemical wedding and the Fama on the confessio, and. I had to spend about twenty five or thirty years thinking about it, you know, because you know and plus you read commentaries which make it even more confusing yes. you know there are so many different commentaries out there, whether from coming from an anthroposophical standpoint or a hermetic standpoint or whatever psychological standpoint, and it was just confusing, but I loved the book, and I was intrigued by the story mm-hmm. and I was also intrigued by, if you read any, anything, really, any, any critical literature, they always talk about how Johann Valentin Andre uh, would ask about his involvement with writing this story. He said, well, you know, basically he said it was a joke. It was a game, you know, mm-hmm. and no one, t- no one believes him. <laughs> and all the esoteric commentators say, what could he mean by that? It can't be a joke. He must mean something. No, he actually means it's a joke, which is what when I finally got around to writing about it. And I wouldn't have done it, but a friend of mine from graduate school said, you're probably the only person I know who could actually write something interesting or original about The Chemical Wedding. You ought to give it a a crack. Mm. So I did. And it was fun, actually, to get into it finally. Because, you know, after, you know, I think I'm a kind of a slow thinker. I don't jump to conclusions. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need a long time to kind of contemplate what it is. And you know, this one took 25 or 30 years, but that's, that's what, that's what drew me to it. And I thought, well, what if he is playing games? How can we read? And how can I read this with that? Yeah. Which is what I, what my approach was when I, when I took it up again.
0: Yeah. It's really uh, insightful. I would say, because I think that is a, Sort of a primary aspect of this, these texts, especially this one. Um, can you talk more about exactly sort of your interpretation of what he meant by a game, a, this serious mm-hmm. game, yeah. and and it, a th- there's, I mean, the implications yeah. of this are tremendous, uh, especially for people who I think who are listening to this.
1: Well. What I what I what I concluded he was doing, and, and it was inspired in part by uh, Stanley Fish, who uh, uh, talks about. He has a book called "Self Consuming Artifacts," which which was uh, he wrote, and he was an expert on still is on seventeenth century literature, and he talks about how the literature, the religious literature at the time, was not just to kind of not just apologetics or ex- expl- uh, explicating dogma, but it was really, um, uh, physic for the soul. So he points to John Dunn's, uh, um, uh, what's, what's it called? Uh, death stool. Yeah. You know, that his last, um, sermon when he was practically dead himself and he also points to, uh, Francis Bacon, in the essays, and also to um, George Herbert, Mm -hmm. which the idea with those texts, according to Fish, and and I agree with him, is that they're, they're devised in such a way that if you rely on them, you don't get what you're supposed to get out of it. They're supposed to... There, uh, he, he compares it to being on a ladder and having somebody kick out the rungs on, underneath you as you're climbing up, getting no place else to go. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think that the chemical wedding is. And I, and I think what Andre is doing there is, is, is giving us what we think we want, you know. And he makes so much fun of an esoteric pride or academic pride. I mean, it's one of his primary uh, targets in, in the book but he's he's pointing out that if you rely on me for these things you are doing the wrong thing You're, there's no the secret is you have the secret right mm-hmm. so that so it's really a conditioning of the soul which i think is it's really useful in that way because but i think unfortunately i think we have uh, 400 and some years of people not getting it yeah you know, and one of the things I, I use as a reference point in the introductory essay is uh, Foucault's pendulum, mm-hmm. which is a—it's another one. It's a—it's a 500-page it's a f- setup of a joke, right? Yes. And uh, brilliant setup. It is a brilliant setup, and I think—and I think—you uh, can tell from Echo, he's a sharp reader of this literature. Very sharp. You know, and he knows what they're doing. Yes. And he knows when well, he knows what the chemical wedding is doing. I think. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing about it. And then, But that's what happens in, in uh, Bembo, the the character in the, in the book, when he, when he finally outs himself, it outs all these people who think they they belong to this esoteric order that didn't exist till he invented it, but it goes back hundreds of years, <laughs> you know, pull out the cork, he says. Right? Um, and they get incensed that he would do this. That's right. And, and that actually, it's kind of the uh, response I was waiting for, and I'm sure I've I've had in some some quarters about this because you know I my part of my expertise in the literature is on esoteric texts, so-called esoteric texts. I don't I think they're like Thomas Vaughn for instance. I have a, I have a chapter in my first book on Thomas and Henry Vaughn and I've written about John Dee, and I've written about Sir Kenelm Digby, if you know mm-hmm. about him. And also, I have another chapter in another book on Robert Flood. Oh, yeah. And, but I don't, you know, unlike most of my peers in academia, when they read those texts, they try to dismiss those guys as kooks. Yes. But they weren't kooks. I mean, in fact, anything, you could call them, they were they were actually trying to preserve uh, a picture of metaphysics and of the world that was vanishing because of the scientific revolution. Yeah, that's true. You know, and... No, we could almost call them traditionalists in a way. Yeah, I would agree with that. They they were rejecting pure nature, you know, that there's such a thing. There's a the Cartesian bifurcation of reality. You know, That's they're right. rejecting that outright. Yes. In fact, uh Thomas Vaughn calls <laughs> calls them the whimsies of Descartes, you know. Mm-hmm. He despises them because he doesn't get what reality is. That it is reality as a physical and spiritual reality at one time.
0: Yeah, it's not, Really Aristotelian in a way. Yeah, like what am I when I'm not thinking? hmm yeah. So, would it be accurate, do you think, to characterize what you're describing here as a <sighs> turning away from the sort of the esoteric orders, the, the mythopoetic origin stories, and more towards a per, almost like personal mysticism of like the, the, the real mystery is, is found within and it's not going to be revealed to you by some hierophant that, that comes along. Oh.
1: Um, well, well, like a self initiation kind of
0: thing. Not necessarily self initiation, but uh-huh. I'm thinking more of like, uh, like Jacob Berme comes to mind. That's yeah. sort of like, uh, innocent mysticism of yeah. the heart.
1: That's what I, and I think, I I don't think there's that much evidence. Well, Andrea would not, he was a contemporary, exact contemporary of Burma, And, uh, I don't think there's any evidence that he read him, but there was something percolating in Germany at the time that, you know, this, you know, it's almost an oxymoron now, but Protestant mysticism, right? That I think with Burma, it kind of set, reset uh, mysticism in a, in a way that in the 20th century, Martin Heidegger did with philosophy, Mm -hmm. just kind of start game over. We're starting over from scratch. And I think, and I think that that's, also present in the, in the Rosicrucianism of the 17th century. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's, that's there. But I, I th- also think there's um, in the Fama and the confessio and less in the chemical wedding, but there's uh, this, I think it's a true and sincere desire for the regeneration of culture. Of, of society. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what they call the, the General Reformation, right? They yes. wanted the ge- Reformation of everything.
0: Yeah. Of because the
1: culture, of theology, of... Of science. Science. Of everything. Yeah. And people point to Francis Bacon as being part of it. I don't think that's true at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think Bacon... There's, there's, as far as I can see, there's nothing Rosicrucian in him. Um, and the, Rose, the Rosicrucian ethos... And you do see this in Rudolf Steiner. Is, is out there as Steiner can be in cer- c- certain regards when he comes to what reality is, you know, the, the relationship of I'm looking up at my, at my garden and my compost pile, at the relationship of compost to the cosmos, yeah. you know, there it is right there. And that's Rosicrucianism as far as I'm concerned. Would
0: you think it's wrong to see it as, uh, I don't know if these labels suffice, but sort of like a Western non-duality, sort of non-dualism. Absolutely. Okay. It's
1: Aristotelian in that way. You know, there's not, uh, I think, and, and I also, I've written a couple of books on sociology. Mm-hmm. And I sociology is exactly that, saying that there is no, and this is what uh, natura pura, or pure nature philosophy was, was saying that, you know, could there be any person, thing, place in 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 the creation that's god's presence is absent from and that's really that's Descartes, right and the rosicrucians and sociologists, verma one absolutely reject that idea mm-hmm. right and it, so it's aristotelian in that way in fact um um if you've ever seen them i don't know if you can probably get get you can certainly get them on the internet but uh in robert flood's books you know how beautifully illustrated they are he has a a theme he goes back to again and again of uh the double pyramid Mm -hmm. which is two triangles that intersect each other um and at at the one end of the like the apex of one triangle so the base is at the bottom so that's the bottom is pure, pure matter. Mm-hmm. Apex is, is pure spirit, but they're never absent from one another. So, sometimes they have more more matter and more spirit, mm-hmm. but they're never uh, alienated from each other. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's what the Rosicrucians, sociologists, that's what they were trying to n- not lose. Because that really was the default position in Christianity, but in every spiritual tradition, I would say, maybe, maybe not with Hinduism so much. You know, there there was definitely duality in, in some of the more systems. But <laughs> <and> <laughs> paganism, right? Neopaganism, it's all about that, mm-hmm. right? So I think uh, that's a good thing. And I think it's a good thing to be reminded of because I think a lot of the things we see, I, mean, I was just writing about this this morning, um, a lot of things we see in, in the world that are just so disordered are disordered because... Of this, uh, this break between the sp- spirit and matter, or reality and non-reality, right? So, I, and so that that's that's kind of been those things have preoccupied me for a long time, but especially for the last five or six years.
0: Um, I don't know if this is a digression, but I feel like it's maybe not. Um, if if people accept what you're saying, and I, I certainly agree with you, um, why is it that so few of the so-called esoteric schools that embrace this entire view of reality, maybe not as well articulated as you just did, but were mm-hmm. as well considered even, but if that's the view, why wouldn't the aim be to pursue the realization of that? Mm-hmm. Or, well, I mean, maybe in some places it is, but... Well, I think it depends on, on where you are. I think certainly...
1: In Steiner's work, for instance, he does pursue that. And he actually he comes up with, came up with all these practical things mm-hmm. that acknowledge that, whether it's biodynamic farming or older schools or anthroposophical medicine, whatever. So he takes it into consideration. I think the problem there is that anthroposophists can be a little off-putting or seem cultish to people from outside of the group. So they come closer like, whoa, this is kind of weird for me. Mm-hmm. You know? Um Esoteric groups, though, I, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, I think probably the regret of, of you and Valentin when uh, people started to make a big deal about Rosicrucianism in the middle part of the 17th century. It's like, you, you didn't get it. And all <laughs> of a sudden, these people were starting all these groups. We're Rosicrucians. We must be. I've just discovered that I'm Rosicrucian. And, and I'm not saying those people aren't. Rosicrucians, but I don't, I, just because you, you you know, you you have Rosicrucian swag doesn't make you Rosicrucian. And I think, um, Amor or all those kinds of things, which I think there is a little bit of Rosicrucian in all of them, Mm -hmm. but, but I think when they go, um, like Blavatsky in, uh, Isis Unveiled, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a Rosicrucian book. You know, yeah. it's kind of a Western mystery tradition yeah, yeah, oh, book, definitely. unlike the Secret Doctrine, which right. more goes Buddhist and <laughs> Hinduism. Um But I, I think, in the, at least in those uh, iterations, what they do is they they discard the the Christian impulse, mm-hmm. which is so central to at least this. When I think of Rosicrucianism, I think of the seventeenth century, yeah. those three books. Yeah, you know, and what's articulated there—that's like. That's the starting point. And probably the, the good part is it gave people more license to explore their own avenues about it. Mm-hmm. Bad part is it gave people more license to explore their own avenues about it. So it could ends up being about anything, you know? And I think this happened in Steiner's early work, you know, where he was really stuck to the Theosophical Society for a while mm-hmm. and talking about masters and, Yes, Prolaya and Manvantara, which all disappears by the time he actually does the really interesting stuff with mm-hmm. farming and education. Right. You know, so I mean, it's it's hard to say, but I, I I definitely think, and this is what turned me off to esoteric groups back in the day. It I don't know. Well, in the Catholic Church, for instance, as screwed up as it can be, you have a hierarchy. You know where you stand. You know you you have checks and balances. Right. Just like academia, as screwed up as that can be, at least you have checks and balances. You come mm-hmm. up with crazy ideas. You go, what do you think of my crazy idea? No, and but you don't get that in esoteric schools. So you, people get freedom to just say whatever they want to say, and it might be true, it might not be true, but it it leads very often leads people into megalomania and just craziness, mm-hmm. you know, and and gives everybody else a bad name. <laughs> yeah
0: interesting yeah good point could you say more about um sophiology like how would you define that uh how does one study it what are some of the texts and yeah sure people involved uh,
1: so sophiology i um i heard the word you know when i was a kid I wasn't sure what it meant i heard talk people talk about sophia but um, well, that's a while ago, I started reading Russian philosophy mm-hmm. and and uh, reading Nicholas Verjaev and Vladimir uh, Slovyev. Mm-hmm. And and sophiology comes in there, especially in the, the Slovyev. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started reading more and more about it. It was really intriguing to me. Um, um, I'm kind of acquainted with Robert Powell, I don't know if you know who that is. Mm-hmm. Robert Powell and one I, gosh this is when i was working on my master's degree in about 2000 i was going to do it on valentin tomberg oh
0: yeah
1: uh, my master's thesis but i couldn't uh i couldn't get anybody to get on board <laughs> at the university but i i in the process of it i called robert powell for, i don't know how i got his phone number and he was in germany at the time and and he was very helpful but so uh and so all these things were, I was, I was investigating. Tomberg in uh, his book, Meditations on the Tarot, also yeah. touches on some quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was always there, but I wasn't really too invested in it. And then when I was working on my PhD, working on my dissertation, I was, like I said, I was doing it on uh, part of his on Thomas and Henry Vaughan. Right. And another chapter was on Jane Lead. Mm-hmm. of the philadelphian yeah. society and i remember reading through them like, and i saw how much sophiology was in there mm-hmm. in both of all, yeah. all three of them and also how much burma was there yeah i mean, no, and i think i think sophiology would not have taken off without him he's ground zero and even though um you can go back to to the Proverbs, or the Book of, of Sirach, or Wisdom, and then it's, those are like the foundational texts of sophiology. But somehow it took this cobbler from from, from Bavaria to rediscover it, you know. And so, that, so, so I, I think Burma's uh, book, *The Way to Christ*, mm-hmm. is a foundational text, and that because most of his stuff is really hard to read. Yeah, and that's not an easy book to read, but it's the easiest of his books to read. Um, Jane led as well. She was a follower of Burma. She was in Eng- England uh, with the Philadelphian Society, which is a fascinating yeah. point, point of history. And her books, I think you can get most of them for free online, which is, you know, I was thankful when I was working on my dissertation that, because um, just 10 years before that, I was trying to do something on Robert Flood, but couldn't get a book. None of them are in print, they're all in Latin. And the only book within 500 miles, I think the closest one after this was at Harvard, was at U of M's Rare Book Library. So I'd have to go there, and it was like visiting
0: somebody in prison.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> I've been in that
0: Harvard Rare Book. You'd have to check things out. oh, and and well, you couldn't check it out. You had to read it there. I mean, yeah, you have to get yeah. it, check it out there. They No phone or camera. and right. the guard's right there. Yeah, you have to, like, no pens <laughs> or pencils. So, like, well, how am I Can't supposed talk. to... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly,
1: so so I was really thankful. Just a few years later, when Google digitized most of those texts, yeah, that's good, which just saved my life. Um, but so so you see it also in Robert Flood, you know, and his mosaical philosophy—it's all over the place in there, all of, all the all the way through his books. He's going back to this again and again, and um, so who else? I mean, so have, and then there were more mainstream Russian theologians and philosophers like Sergei Bulgakov uh-huh. and pa- Pavel Florensky, who wrote... Uh, in fact, I think Florensky's book, uh, The Pillar and Ground of the Truth, is actually the model for uh, Tomberg's Berg's Meditations on the Tarot. Because hmm. each one, I was surprised to find, each one starts with a, uh, an emblem just like tarot starts with, with a card and they're all written in letters as letters and there's one um, very interesting letter on Sophia. Mm. So it's, it's those are some in, uh, foundational texts okay. in sophiology. So, but with sophiology, the idea is like we're going to talk it's really kind of a Rosicrucianism that the world is integral, right? It's how do you discern um, the glory of the Lord, right? right. That's what the Shekinah. it's really in Kabbalah too, I think with the Shakina it's mm-hmm. it's sophiology as far as i 'm concerned um because and and I think you actually another foundational text for sophiology, believe it or not, is uh Terence malek's films huh. and in particular uh the Tree of Life have you seen it if oh, you haven 't seen it, it you need to see it, it. Yeah. but and, and also uh the thin red line is another one because. In all of his films, you, you, there's this, and I shouldn't say all, but most of his films, there's a presentation where you see human life with all of its tragedies and troubles, right? But there's still something shining through, right? In fact, that's the last line of his film, uh, the, the thin red line, all things shining, right? And so... And that's what sophiology is. It's attentiveness to that shining. And I kind of stumbled on this. in a, I, stu- I shouldn't say I stumbled to it. I, I understood sophiology, which I've been reading about for 20 years, through uh, a kind of in-depth study of phenomenology. Say more about that. Phenomenology is, well, it doesn't start with Husserl, but Husserl is probably the most popular uh Innovator of it, but it came from Franz Brentano, who was Husserl's teacher and Steiner's teacher. And Steiner certainly works out of sociology, and and all of them draw on Goethe's phenomenology, right? Yeah. Which just and this is where I got into it as a literary critic, right? Is I didn't I didn't have much patience with what uh, Harold Bloom calls the schools of resentment. You know, with different kinds of literary criticism, which aren't, which are really political agendas projected onto a work of literature, I always turn me off. So I kept thinking, well, that's that's a a way to do this that respects the integrity of the work and the author and doesn't dismiss them to, you know, a trope of racist or whatever it happens to be, right? Right. Um, And I wrote a book on this called The Incarnation of the Poetic Word. Um, so with phenomenology, though, so st- and in fact, it was actually not Husserl; it was Heidegger studying Being in Time. I started to get the sense of when you can perform what what epo- uh, the epoché, which is uh, a bracketing, where you have your assumptions. And this is what Husserl says, with Heidegger says, you push all your preconceptions as much as you can to the side while you're encountering phenomena. This is what uh, Goethe did, right? So, And if you can do that, and it takes time. It doesn't happen like in five minutes. It it happens like my experience with a chemical wedding over the course of time. But you hold it in reverence, and eventually it will reveal itself to you, right? And I also think that, um, and this happens, you know, part of my... Being is invested in poetry, and you know we've all had these experiences with with the arts in particular, but also with nature, where you're attentive to something, and you're not expect you don't have expectations of it, but you're attentive to it, and it reveals itself to you, whether it's a poem or nature, you know, and it and that's that's what the shining is, right? That's the that's the splendor. What's that word? Uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar uses the splendor or the shining. You know, it's it's actually if you think about it in terms of the Genesis story, it's the light of the first day, mm-hmm. right? And this is something Robert Flood was uh, always talking about in his books. Is, you know, his meditations on the, the difference between light and light. You know, like, between life and life, right? Between Zoe or Bios. Mm-hmm. Okay. When, when, when Jesus says, I'm, I'm you know, by the way, the truth, and the life, right? He doesn't mean I'm biology. Right. He's like, there's something that makes livingness
0: alive. Right. And, and,
1: and that's that's what sociology reveals.
0: That's fascinating. Um, I guess this would be a good point since you mentioned this sort of way in which you pay attention. And then that attention results in some sort of maybe revelation or unfoldment. Opening, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so this is probably a good point to talk about love because in many ways, love and attention are kind of, in my mind, synonymous because we... What we love, we pay attention to. Absolutely. So can we can you talk more about love and Eros and how that sort of fits in with all of this?
1: Oh eros er, it's all over the place in this. Um so Simone Vey, for instance, you know, just one of her one quote I just love is uh attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Right? So so if you're attending to something, you can't I mean there is an erotic relationship to it, right? Mm-hmm. There, and you 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 have this erotic relationship because it's separate from you, right? You can never be filled metaphysical desire, right? right? It can never be filled, longing. but yeah. but the longing. But the more you're filled, the more you have, the more you get fed, the more you desire. Yes, right. And and that's um, I think in uh, in Proverbs, for instance, with uh, when when Sophia speaks or Hokma speaks. In Proverbs eight, you know, she talks, and my she says, uh, "There I was, I was his plaything, mm-hmm. talking about God's plaything, and I and I found delight in the children of men. I mean, that's it. It goes both ways, too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it kind of uh, even though I, it's easy to dismiss Aquinas as not doing that, but Aquinas is actually attentive to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but too often in scholastic theology, the love is an... isn't it's an abstract kind of philosophical term and it's not an erotic relationship. But I think sociology, Rosicrucianism, as I understand it, you know, you 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 form this and I think not only is it a a loving relationship with that which is what's outside of you. And uh we could say uh It's like uh, the microcosm, macrocosm is a nice way to think about. It. Another way to think about it is uh, David Bohm's idea of implicate order, mm-hmm. right? Where what is the whole is implicit in in the, in the individual, and the individual is implicit in the whole. So that's an erotic relationship, right? And that I think is not only is it is it an erotic relationship, but it's a healing relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think so much we what we see in our culture is Lacking that. Yeah. Absolutely lacking that. You know, and and, and, in my uh, (laughs) mission in a way, or the thing that preoccupies me is how can we get that to enter back into human life? You know, in my book on uh, the incarnation of the poetic word, there's a chapter on Robert Herrick, Mm -hmm. the English poet. But I love Robert Herrick because he embraces the world as it is. And it's his book, uh, Hesperides, is so messy. It's no, there's no order, no rhyme or reason to how he throws things together, but there's, 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 uh, kind of a palimpsest of, uh, Catholicism shows up, pagan Rome shows up, then kind of a, a neo or a pagan folk religion is all over the place there as well. And he embraces it all, right? And, and I think that's how, that's, we should be like that. You know, I think too often what we see is people, and I don't care where it is, whether it's in religion, philosophy, politics, esoteric groups, they form camps, right? Oh, yeah. And Robert Herrick doesn't <laughs> – he the only camp he's, again is he's against is par- he's, he's against the party poopers who are trying to take all the fun away from everybody, right? Right. Take t- take that messiness away and try to order everything, right? Yeah. That's what everybody wants. I really want to I just it. We need to get everybody on the same page.
0: Well, that's what the mind does, right? That's that's what we do with knowledge. We mm-hmm. classify Compart- it. Pure Aristotle, it. right? Yeah, and and in many ways, wisdom what you're talking about is the opposite of that. It is embracing it all, all as it yeah. in its totality, yeah. and not having concepts and ideas and thoughts that weigh it down right. and make it all so heavy and oh yeah,
1: yeah. what well, it is it's it's you know and you find and this is why I think poets uh, the un-
0: unacknowledged
1: legislators of the world right J- John Keats with his idea of negative capability I don't need to have everything figured out I can live in this tension with with things not uh, abstracted into submission
0: mm-hmm. you know yeah in many ways living in the in the in the mystery it is to really be alive, but mm-hmm. it is. to to know it all is it's, to to really be like a robot in
1: yeah. many ways. And I that's what always turned me off about some esoteric, you know, peeps, you know, who it becomes a kind of uh, antiquarianism.
0: Oh, you know for I mean? sure.
1: And I mean it was for me for a long time. Well be too. It's collecting data. Yeah. But then it. You know, you think, well, what, how does this contribute to the way I actually live? You know? Then, and it's easy maybe before you have children. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is easier yeah. before yeah. you have children. But then you have children and you go, wow, this is just, I need, there's, we need to have more here. Yeah. yeah, And there's nothing wrong with being an antiquarian. No. But if you think that's the be-all and end-all of human existence, and that everybody else should be an antiquarian.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I I found for me personally what... It was all wrapped up in this desire to know and understand, for my own sake, and also to know more than other people because that would make me feel better about myself. So, yeah, that's not really a healthy way
1: to be. but but I also think it comes from a dissatisfaction with what with our education, with the way we've been taught. You know, there's something's missing completely.
0: Yeah, well, that's and that's the erotic comes back. Well, that's right because I think it's like a Really, uh, like very base, like intuition of like the emptiness of all things, and and that's yep. really like that's the doorway to what you're talking, discovering what you're talking about. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, and that, and I think it's 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 something. Well, this is Thomas Traherne, right? Thomas Traherne's poetry is all about this, or returning to the garden, mm-hmm. right? about returning to that vision of oneness with the whole right yeah uh, I think he's I think he's too often dismissed as a kind of a Pollyanna but I don't think he's that at all I think he's probably one of the wisest philosophers <laughs> ever to come out of England because you know it's all about perception how you see the world is how it is yes and if you can change the way you perceive it you can change the world you know it's implicit
0: order yeah I mean the I think the main problem is most people's vision lacks the clarity and the strength to be able to hold that for more than a very finite moment in time. And
1: it's even harder now in a, in a hyper distracted society,
0: right? Yeah, but I I I think it requires, like you said, like patience, contemplation, uh-huh. being quiet. Um you know and there's many methods to like achieve those sorts of states, but but I think the thing is you have to pursue it. It has to be an act of will. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't no. It seems like that's the In opposite. our
1: society it doesn't, because you know yeah. that's why I left my phone down the stairs yeah. and I mean, be stairs.
0: I mean I can say I as a human being, my tendency is like laziness, like I like the least, expending the least amount of effort that I have to, to be comfortable. It's conservation of energy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, well, it is. But uh, the other thing I think, though, is one, and this is what we've been trying to do here at my farm, is, you yeah. know, so it's especially during the growing season, we're, we work 14 hour days. Yeah, but you have on the other hand, you know, we're engaged with the real. Right. Those are real things where, you know how to make things grow is a real thing. Oh, for sure. you know, and it's have hard for work a, for a guy who grew up in the city, like I did in Detroit. Right. It's, uh, it it's healing for one thing, but the other thing is it, it's, you can see it's a return to what, to the real. And, and it's a luxury f- for me that we that I'm out outside all, so much, but I, I would have to say that it's probably just an extension of, and I think I get into the same kind of space when I'm in the garden that I'm, my wife, um, and my, when I, was, I used to be a Waldorf teacher in, um, one of my friends said something to me. I used to play the guitar and I had a guitar at school and I was playing in my, in my office when the kids were, up, or in my, my room when the kids are outside of recess. And I was just playing and my friend came in and she said, Michael, you don't look the same. Because I was in kind of improvising, I was not trying to learn something. I was I was in a in the zone, right? Mm-hmm. And that happens. in Music happens in the garden. It happens in my relationship with poetry or scripture or whatever it happens to be, right? That that's that's something that people can make a reality. But the thing is, it has to be nurtured. Yeah, you know, it's you have to you have to cultivate it.
0: Yeah, I remember reading "I Am That." Well, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Nisargadatta, uh-huh. And one of the things he said is like, anything can become a way provided you're interested enough in it. Mm-hmm. You pay enough attention to it. If you do it enough, anything can become a way to, to that yep. that you're talking about.
1: And it can all can become a prayer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Everything is
0: sacred yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit more about your relationship with steiner and his material and um how that has evolved over time
1: yeah um so i probably first encountered i was actually when i first encountered steiner i went to an occult bookstore looking for a book on Rosicrucians. rosicrucian's mm-hmm. the guy actually i ended up working there later and then i met my wife there um the guy sold me a book called and i don't know I I don't know where it is I was looking for it the other day uh, Rosicrucian esotericism it's called I used to have that book but if you're if that's going to be your introduction to Rosicrucianism it's a bad place to start yeah. <laughs> because uh, standard is not easy to read no you know um but I and I but I happened though is I, and I ended up working at this store and I was reading a little bit of standard or trying to anyway it's in my early 20s but I started to meet all these people who were Waldorf teachers because they would come in there to get their standard books and they said you know what he'd be a really good Waldorf teacher. So really? So I started to talk to them and they said, why don't you come down to the school? You know, you can visit and they offered me a job as an assistant. Mm -hmm. I hadn't finished my bachelor's degree yet. So I got to see it. And what was wonderful about it is I did a practicum in every grade. Oh, okay. so I was a really good Waldorf teacher. You know, I had, I knew the whole scope. And in fact, they were really lovely people. They they asked, they said, you know what? we don't have a teacher training here, but we're going to take it on. We're going to train you, which I actually, I think they had the best training all their teachers have because of that. Um, so, so that's, I kind of got it by an enculturation. And, uh, like you said, you know, at first I would read it and I was just gathering information and esoteric constructs, you know, like stanner's standards book cult science, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, I, one of the people I also met who actually got me the interview for the job, he was he was the doing the maintenance and the, the grounds at the school. But he had uh, there was at one point uh, the Detroit Waldorf school where I taught uh, uh there was a teacher training center in Southfield, Michigan in a place at Dunscota's Friary. Okay. Which is now something else. They sold the uh, Franciscan sold it. But it was beautiful, Romanesque church, I mean really beautiful, huge grounds, probably on a hundred acres in the middle of the Southfield, nice. and they had this beautiful garden there where I used to in, a, in an apple orchard. And I used to go there because I worked across the street for a while and I would have lunch there. Mm-hmm. had no idea there was a Waldorf or there, even that there was a Waldorf education, but I thought, well, it turns out later that my friend was running this garden with Alan York. I don't know if you know who Alan mm-hmm. York was Alan York is the guy who basically single-handedly saved the wine industry. And this is about um, 25, 26 years ago. Um, what happened, We Alan had left Detroit, and he was, uh, I think he was living in California, and so we called him up on the phone because we, we were thinking about getting some land to start a farm. And he said, I need to sell this farm. I said, what? And because he was doing so much consulting work for vineyards, because... 25, 30 years ago, the wine industry was freaking out because they thought within 20 years there would be no grapes any place because they were being overrun with disease and pests and all this stuff. And so Alan went into this consulting stuff, and you can see videos of them all over the place on on YouTube, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, where he took these wineries and brought in biogenial principles and brought them back to life. Okay. In fact, he even did one for Sting. Oh. You know, from the police, uh-huh. uh, and he died a couple years ago, maybe five years ago now. Unfortunately, he was only sixty-four, I think. But he's also in this film, uh, "The Biggest Little Farm," I think it's called. Came on documentary about a year ago, mm. and he's in there. In fact, he dies in the middle of the film. I my wife and I went to see it. I said, "Oh my gosh, it's Alan!" So, so my, so part of my entra- entrance into Steiner was. Reading the super esoteric stuff like occult science and stuff like, you know, in a, or karmic relationships. Uh, the other part was the really practical stuff with farming and education. Right. You know? And so so that, so that over time, though, looking back at it now. So I left being an older teacher in 2007. Um, and, I've, and we always ran our gardens biodynamically. And just get, they kept getting bigger into a farm. Um, but what I've noticed is that um, not everybody, but a lot of anthroposophists and a lot of people just, you know, when they think, they look at a thinker. say they're looking at Tomberg or Steiner or kerchief They want to think that the person was born with all the same ideas that he died with, right? right. Yeah, That he didn't develop over time. And it's clear to me Steiner changed and developed not only when he started his esoteric career, but it's all career because before he, he started an esoteric career, he was kind of a bohemian intellectual, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Editing, uh, Gertz's scientific papers. But then, you know, he, he had some, definitely, you can see, you can tell he had some natural clairvoyance, uh, but which he developed as a thinking, not, uh, just purely through a kind of a of intuition. He developed it through thinking, you know, and I think he got this through German idealism too, and Goethe in particular. yeah and uh, but he changed over time because when he first started giving public lectures, when he was on the Theosophical side, there's all this stuff about Perlia and Manvantara and the masters, and which is you know you get from Blavatsky. but that stuff disappears by the time you know he, after World War one for for sure, right? yeah. You know, so he changed quite a bit and people don't want to think that he changed, which is kind of strange, but and so my relationship to him changed as well over that time. And I, I would say for a few years, I was kind of on a Steiner sabbatical. <laughs> I was giving him a rest, mm-hmm. but then I realized this is only about four years ago. I said, wow, you know what? I did not realize how important the way that man thinks has impacted me, you know? In good ways, in good ways, and so, so that you know. And even recently, I was trying to read uh, some lectures he gave, nineteen oh five, though, or nineteen oh four, really early, on masonry, yeah. the temple legend. Yeah. Um, but it's so different than this. You know, usually, um, usually when I read standard these days, it's to go back to the farming stuff around beekeeping, you know, which is it's a different person, yeah, totally different person than those those lectures. And, and I think he's he's both more seasoned or and more grounded. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why that is, but I imagine he just I mean, uh, his his prayer life just and I think his meditative life is
0: deepened. Yeah, I, those years. I, that's my impression. Like just that deepens and matures as some as one gets older and experiences yeah. life and the ups and downs of existence. Yeah. And I think, I think actually people don't talk about, it, but I think world
1: war one profoundly oh. changed him.
0: How could it not? Yeah. I mean, it just was such a huge upheaval to society. Yeah. And he really saw it's over, you
1: know, unless somebody does something. And, 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 that, and that's what I, I think i most admire about him because philosophers, esotericists, they all talk a good game. Not many people actually do something.
0: Yeah, that was always my impression of Steiner's. Like, he he never hesitated to, like, engage with the world, like, giving free lectures, like, trying to actually help people on the level that they needed help. Yeah. So... I think that was impressive to me that he, he wasn't trying to foist his philosophy on anybody. Right. He was like he was really like meeting people where they were yeah. and just doing whatever he could.
1: And he always said, "Don't take my word for it. <laughs> See if it works for you." Right. You know?
0: Yeah, that's in many ways kind of a rare thing for uh, a modern Western occult mm-hmm. thinker teacher. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for him in, in respect to that. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm curious about um, some of the other books you've written. I know you, you sort of mentioned them as we've been talking, but I don't know if you want to like uh, wh- talk okay. about them a little more in detail. Well, I,
1: there's a literature in the encounter with God, and uh, what's it called in post-Reformation England. Um, so that's got a chapter on John Dee and his discussions with, with his spirits. And also on um, John, John Dunn. Mm-hmm. And then on um, Calum Digby, Henry and Thomas Wan, and then Jane Lead. So that, so that, that's a scholarly monograph. That's, that's probably the most dense book I've ever written. Mm-hmm. But you know, when that book came out, I, I've had no trouble getting a published book. The publisher and the academic publishers do this. they were charging 110 bucks for the sure, book, yeah. and I'm like, that is no fair to anybody. You know, that's and they don't. There's no way they have to, have to do that. And if they, I think it's a horrible business model, anyway.
0: Well, yeah, I I mean, I'm certainly not trying to justify it, but I I know that the amount of copies of those books that they sell, like, in order to be able to put those out and they i think they need to and to staff the business the way That's, they do That's but
1: but the thing is i since then i, I start i after that I, I hooked up with Angelico Press and i know they they do print print order mm-hmm. which cuts down on a lot of them. Oh yeah and, they, and and they pay they pay copy editors they pay uh,
0: designers but they don't they, Angelico <coughs> probably doesn't think of their primary customers as libraries and institutions well, and that's the
1: problem you yeah. know in academic publishing uh, I i tell my students yeah. they're all
0: trying to they're milking
1: you when they're t- selling textbooks to kids
0: yeah they shouldn't for be doing 150 like, yeah, no those their customer <coughs> is the the university yeah. the, the library I it,
1: mean, but but libraries aren't really buying books anymore. see and that's a problem yeah that's so, and that's why the whole I,
0: model's really collapsing it, in it many is. ways i mean the, Unfortunately, and I don't, I didn't mean to go here in this conversation, <laughs> but like the whole student loan debt crisis situation connected. is such a scam that I, I look is. at it and I'm like, mm-hmm. how could I possibly in good conscience counsel my children to go to college exactly. in this in this state? System. Yeah. It, it's outrageous. Exactly.
1: So there's that. And then that was in 2014, I think. In 2015, I published no, and then I published another book that actually the same month, a uh, book of poetry, mm. Meditations in Times of Wonder. And then the next year, 2015, I published uh, The Submerged Reality, which is a book on sociology. After that, I did a, a case book on sociology called The Heavenly Country, mm. which has uh, one section full of primary sources. Yeah, So, Brahma. Robert Flood, Jane Lead, John Portage, other people, of That's a big section. And then there's another section of uh, sophiological poetry, which is, uh, you know, from history. There's Hildegard of Bingens in there, uh, Dante, as well as uh, Charles Williams. Uh, some more unknown poets like... Uh, Chesla, well, Chesla Milosz is in there, but also his, his, his cousin, uh, Oscar de, de Milosz, who wrote in French. He's a beautiful poet. Not a lot of people know him. Um, and then the, the last third of that book are academic essays on different aspects of sociology. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I did the book on, uh, on poetry, poetry, on poetics, uh, incarnation of the poetic word. And then what did I follow that up with? <laughs> and then I followed that. The next one after that was uh transfiguration, mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of cultural criticism. And it touches on science. In fact, yeah, science, art, pol- not politics, economics, I'm missing something, education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and our, our current uh, involvement with, uh, um, electronic media and, and dis- the, the distancing ourselves from the real through that, right? Yeah. Not just that, but that's a, certainly a symptom of it. Oh, absolutely. Contributor. Yeah. Uh, and now I've just started working on it this week. I'm writing a, on another book on sociology and it's, which is it's, working title is the exile of Sophia or Sophia in exile. And that'll have parts on Gnosticism and Kabbalah. And I think I'll do a I'm do a chapter on Thomas Traherne and William Blake, as well as you know, you know who Eleanor Fargen is. I don't. She wrote lyrics for for one super famous. Song. she wrote the lyrics for "Morning Is Broken" by Tom uh, Cat Stevens. Song. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it was actually a hymn, an Anglican hymn book. Huh. And I, so I always loved that song. But then I there was another. Uh, Carol, we used to sing, when I was a Waldorf teacher, and my family still sings it, uh, People Look East, which is pretty famous She wrote those lyrics, too. And they all have this kind of Christian, neo-pagan vibe to them. You know, they're all very connected to nature. So I wanted to investigate her more. I've been trying to track down her books, and um, there's one of her books, I think it's from 1903, maybe 1908, called Pan Worship. Mm-hmm. Which is phenomenal poetry. So, I want to write a chapter on her as
0: well. Interesting. Yeah. That'd be good. Get to the bottom of that. Because I, I have not heard of her. Yeah. Before. That's why I think more people need to know about her. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm taking my time with this one. Usually I write pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I tell myself, I'll give myself a, a year to do this one. Usually I do it in about two months. But I'm going to stretch this one out. I'm to enjoy this one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the writing <laughs> processes can be. But once I get nice. into the groove, you know what I mean? You don't yeah. want to get out of the groove. Right. But, uh, so we'll see. We'll see. I, I'm telling myself it'll be a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might be done by April. <laughs> well, just do it, do it. Just handle it as
0: it comes. Um, I'm curious how. I mean, I know historically in sort of the context, but how does Kabbalah fit into sophiology other than this sort of as like a reference points for like the Shekinah? Yeah.
1: Um, well, that's what I'm trying to, trying to decide. Well, I think where it connects is with uh, the, the exile of the Shekinah, right? And there's a really interesting book that just came out uh, by Moshe Idel. It's called the Divine Feminine in Kabbalah, or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and he just kind of methodically goes through, you know, this kind of this idea of de, uh, of descent and reascent yeah. that goes through with 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 the Shekinah, right? Where he connects to uh, Keter as well as Malkut, yeah, right. And uh, that's right. But I think that I think that's. That's Sophiaology. That's Sophia right there, is because there, in uh, Sophiaology, there's often people talk about uh, the created and the uncreated Sophia.
0: Yeah, I think in some schools, it's some um, Bina and Malkut.
1: Yeah, and that's what that's what interesting. He said he, he went direct to the crown. Yeah. But he so he changed. He didn't. He didn't change it. He's just going. He he just does a methodical reading of all these me- medieval and Renaissance mm-hmm. kabbalists, and he says what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Which is which was kind of shocked me because I, I I assume the same thing he did. Um. But he knows Hebrew much better than I do.
0: Yeah. There's another book I don't know if you've encountered in your research, um, by a professor in Israel, Adam Afterman. I think his name is. I don't think so. It's on the same sort of subject. What's Um, What's the name of the book? I saw him give a lecture. It was the rise of the Holy Spirit in thirteenth and sixteenth century Kabbalah. But oh. he, he was in the process of writing this book, which was all about ascent and descent. And, okay. In Kabbalah and how that those dynamics like are central to the entire. Uh-huh. It's interesting. System. Actually, another thing I can't
1: remember I have a stack of articles on my desk. Um, there's also a lot of thought out there that the rise of uh, understanding that Shekinah is is a feminine person, right? Divine person arose uh, in harmony or resonance with uh, the rise of the cult of Mary in the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, too.
1: Yeah, because, like, what's his name? Uh, Gershom Sholem doesn't see that when the Shekinah is mentioned in... The Old Testament or in Old Testament times, not it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. That it never seems to be about a person. Right. It's always about the presence of God. Yes, right? the
0: divine presence.
1: Yeah, but if that divine presence either becomes personified or people figure out that it's a per- that it's a person uh, in the Middle Ages.
0: So here's yeah, a- doesn't and that also is coincidental, maybe with the cult of the Black Virgin.
1: I think so. Yeah,
0: absolutely. at least.
1: Well, that's the that cult. Of the cult of Mary comes around then, yeah. and then you know the praying of the rosary. For instance, that mm-hmm. shows up around the 12th century.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: And I, and, that, and that's what I think in in uh, what I've noticed in going through this. So going through this journey from Proverbs to today, looking at Sophiaology as it develops over time, it seems to me that Sophia is this this being of Absolute humility, mm-hmm. you know, behold the handmaid of the Lord, right? And uh, and Burma was the first one, I think, to connect Sophia explicitly with the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. right? And for him, the virginity is not uh, a case of an intact hymen, right. but it's a spiritual state, right? Yeah, a it's, a, it's a return to the garden, right? Yeah,
0: a purity, a humility, a- yeah really like authentic yeah yeah
1: and and that's you know a beautiful passage if you ever get a chance to read jane led in her uh book a fountain of gardens where she talks about her first vision of sophia it's kind of beautiful you know who you know and who who, who is it and uh um led was an anglican you know and she but she was connected to John Portage who had been writing about sophiology and been inspired by Burma and she was thinking wow I, I just really want to feel connected to this and then Sophia appears to her hmm. interesting and yeah. it happened I think it happened also with Soloviev right he had a, a vision of Sophia, and I, I suspect it happened with Bulgakov, but he, but he wouldn't out himself because he didn't want to get kicked out of the Orthodox Church. They're, but you yeah, know, they're already he was already in trouble. But if you read his his theology, it's it's uh, it's luminous in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's radical. It really is radical. Interesting.
0: And this being identified herself as Sophia to them, or they just knew her um, to be that. I don't think Sloviev ever
1: says he saw. He's called her his divine friend. Um. And but I can't remember. Does she, does she say it to Led or not? I don't remember. Well, Led knew who it was. Well, I think if you also look at uh, maybe the, the spiritual world doesn't like named as much as we do, because. When the Virgin Mary appears to kids, she never tells them her name.
0: Um, They call her the lady. Sometimes she does, though. I mean, maybe not everyone, but I I know at least one instance where she did. Okay. It it was like a series of visions, though.
1: Well, I think with uh, Fatima in particular, I'm thinking about And also with uh, um, St. Bernadette. Mm Mm-hmm. She never, never gave her name. They ask because they say, go ask her what her name is. What's your name? I'm the American Conception. Or she'd say something else. Interesting. I'm the Lady of All Nations, which is
0: the one from uh, Holland from World War II. Yeah, I mean, it, this sort of uh, appearance is not as uncommon as it may seem like it should be.
1: Yeah. I think that.
0: Well, I, this has been a really wonderful... Uh, conversation. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I appreciate it too. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to your next book. Um, hearing a little bit about it is intriguing. In the Chamber of Reflection, we have a special interview with author Alan Blackwell about his wonderful book of short stories entitled Twenty Six Gates. Listen to that exclusive recording at chamberofreflection.com or at our Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks and I salute you. Thanks for listening, and until next time...